Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 21, Eigenrobot vs. Zollibot. So, Ollie, you have a manifesto. I, I do. Um, it's, it's, it's poor, but it's there, um, I suppose. It's poor. So, is, is this... I've I've skimmed the manifesto and none of it looks like super radical and I, I don't mean that in an offensive way but you're not it I don't say anything about like sending letter bombs here or the industrial revolution although some parts of it <laughs> some parts of it seem like they're 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 like future like uh talking about future facing industrial revolutions right or something incoming yeah, yeah. Well, so I don't know if you can can say it's not radical. I do talk about how politicians should live in fear, which is a thing I believe, which is yeah. like a little bit radical. Some politicians might find that radical. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I guess that but, didn't yeah, strike I get me. What you mean. That just struck me as common sense, but also that that does seem <laughs> to be true. Okay, actually, yeah. As I'm reading more of it, there there are some items here. Do you mind if I talk about it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's there publicly. Okay. So Okay, yeah, like I'm looking at 26, like deregulation and proliferation of small and medium-sized nuclear reactors. I like mm-hmm. this. Yeah. Um, there's oh, there's a lot of good stuff on here. So some of it, <laughs> actually, this is very interesting. So some of the items in your manifesto are like policy proposals, mm-hmm. like say yeah. nuclear proliferation, pro-nuclear yeah. proliferation. Ollie is pro-nuclear proliferation i just want to establish this <laughs> yeah which i think is a bold stance and very hundoist and i support it um, <laughs> i don't even know what that means but i appreciate uh, it sh- yeah i'm trying to figure out what hundoism is and i just can't <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> um dumbbell centrism i think is the the official although i don't, I don't actually understand that okay um, like yeah okay fair enough yeah good um, yeah then yes i am a hundoist i suppose <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, some of it is like, like really concrete policy proposals and some of it are just like observations about human nature mm-hmm. and some of it, um, some of it are, are, are like predictions about yeah. what's going to happen. So I guess, I guess what I'm curious about as somebody who's never written a manifesto and maybe who would be reluctant to write a manifesto, because I, I don't know that I would be, I think what would happen if I tried to write a manifesto is I would start arguing with myself immediately. Mm, I and definitely very did quickly. That. You did. Okay. Yeah. So uh, it was tricky. Yeah. So so maybe tell me a little bit about like the motivation for writing a manifesto and well, like like so much in my life, um, especially my my public facing Alibot um, pseudonym life. This was spurred by monk bullying me on Twitter. Nice. Um, mechanical <laughs> monk. Mechanical monk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he, <laughs> he posted. Maybe like when I when I had like eight followers back like before I deleted and recreated my account, he posted yeah. this thing being like back when I was like first getting into, you know, legibility bad, all that kind of stuff. He yeah. posted this thing being like, I want all my mutuals to write manifestos. I want to know what your deals are. Um because he was wow. like one of my first followers. And then I was like, but surely this is bad because making a manifesto is bad because like legibility bad, whatever. And he was like, who the fuck do you think you are? Like, like, do you think anyone gives a shit what you think? Write a fucking manifesto. And I was like, oh, fuck this guy. So I sat down and wrote a manifesto. Um, That's amazing. It's titled Things I Hold to be True because 
that's kind of all it is. All it is is like stuff I think is the case. I couldn't commit yeah. to anything stronger than that. All I could say is like, yeah, I think these things are true. Okay. Um, and it's, that's interesting. There, there are some like normative truths and some positive truths. So like, you know, um, such and such is bad, which feels like pretty judgmental, which I, I don't <laughs> say is a judge. I'm not, I'm not being like metanormative, like mm-hmm. in a manifesto, it seems important to judge things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of it is truth in the sense of this is probably what's going to happen. This is the way the world is. Mm-hmm. And okay. So, so this is just an exercise in like making yourself legible to yourself. Yeah. To a certain degree. I think that at least writing a manifesto, even if you don't publish it, um, is a useful thing for the same reason that all note taking is useful, that it, it provides you a way to outline to yourself the space of things you believe to a certain degree. Yeah. So, so what did you learn writing all this out? That I really don't like China was a big one. That surprised me. Um, I didn't have any real opinion on China before writing this. And now I'm like, yeah. oh, that shit's scary. Um, and it's very vaguely scary. Like I'm not an expert in any of this kind of stuff, but I, I find it um, unsettling, which, yeah. which is a big thing that I have on there. And, and then obviously this has evolved over time as I've read more about kind of some of the atrocities there and such. But yeah, but yeah that was like a big one. Um, what else did I learn? I'm not I, let me pull it up because I also forget the things that I believe sometimes. Um, yeah. And should I link this, by the way? Um, if you want to. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, if, if we're talking about it, people might as well be able to look at it. So, Okay, um, cool. Yeah, I'll do that. I, I, you know, I don't want to like overexpose you, but at the same time, I think uh-oh. it is interesting. And like, yeah. it's a cool exercise. Mm-hmm. That, that, uh, definitely. Like, people... it, was, it was a good idea by Monk. Um, my view on guns surprised me. I, I'm like of good socialist stock as i've mentioned on twitter yeah and part of that in europe at least is being kind of anti-gun despite marx's view of arming the populace but yeah yeah um, he was really pro-gun right <laughs> yeah he was but you know modern modern leftist thought is pretty anti-gun uh, yeah. at least in europe so which i think is actually bad but that's not there there that's kind of an object level take but that surprised me that i was like oh i'm actually kind of pro this for these reasons yeah. No, I, I mean, like I, I've definitely moved around on guns over the years, not from any socialist perspective, but just as a matter of starting out, you know, my, my folks are academics and like, I grew up in a pretty blue tribe household, mm-hmm. even if it was like low key blue tribe. I mean, my, my parents didn't do any kind of indoctrination. And in fact, I think they were very systematically anti-indoctrination, but mm-hmm. you know, you could sort of tell. And, (laughs) and so, I mean, you know, I shot guns at Boy Scout camp, but you know, Boy Scouts is sort of almost paramilitary anyway. Mm. So, um, you know, it didn't even occur to me to, (laughs) oh, oh really? Uh, not so much. So yeah. So we definitely don't shoot guns. Uh, Boy Boy Scouts or Scouting Ireland actually as it's called because it's, it's gender integrated here. Um, Yeah. It it is here too now. Catholic Boy Scouts Ireland and then it became Boy Scouts Ireland and then it was Scouting Ireland. Um, oh, that's yeah, it was a whole evolution. It actually, it's it is. Um, I used to be quite heavily involved in the organization, but they. Um, so yeah, they definitely don't shoot guns, but they do come from the military heritage, obviously. But it's a lot more lax now. Yeah, what did it used to be more military? I think back when it was Catholic Boy Scouts Ireland, maybe uh, um, at least more. Um, like aggressively masculine, maybe. Yeah. 
I don't know. I don't know. Ooh, I don't know what kind of thoughts I actually have on this. <laughs> okay. I yeah. well, let's let's put a pin in that because yeah, I, yeah, sure. It's Sorry. it's actually really interesting to hear that you were in scouts too. I mean, I you know, I'm I'm an Eagle Scout, which in the United States is the yeah, highest rank you can get in mm. in scouts, which you know a lot of people do it. It's I, I mean, it's pretty important to me, but it's not remarkably distinguished. Mm-hmm. But I I've been thinking on and off about scout scouts a lot as I'm about to have kids. And I, I think it was a pretty formative experience in my life. Mm. Um, but, but going back to the manifesto, um, yeah. So guns, that that's pretty interesting. Do, do you have any idea why the socialist, uh, I don't know, party that doesn't seem quite right, but party in the, the broad sense in Europe tribe. Tend to, tribe. Yeah. The socialist tribe ended up becoming anti-gun. Um, so I, I'm not, um, I don't live enough in the object world to, to know yeah. for sure. Like I just, I, I'm sure um, some of my lefty friends would say that I'm wrong about this and some would have very good answers about this. I guess the view became, I, I guess the, like, so, like so many things in Europe, it exists in reference to America. Um, I was afraid you were going to say that. Yeah, this is, I, at least I think, to a certain degree. So like post-World War II, a lot of reconstruction of European policy and ideas um, existed in reference. Not all of them. I think a lot of the like the sociological ideas didn't, um, and a lot of the artistic movements didn't, but a lot of the stuff like guns did. And so the American rah-rah stance is, um, you know, all the conservatives have guns because they don't trust the government. Whereas yeah. in Europe, all the all the all the conservatives don't trust the government and don't have guns, and all the socialists do trust the government because our governments are that way leaning. At least most of the time, some of them aren't, but um, and yeah. a lot of us would prefer them to be more that way leaning. But as a result, the kind of view is that you don't want guns because, well, I guess you don't want guns because you trust the state. Um, yeah. And also, uh, like, we just think they're bad. <laughs> we look across at America yeah. and go, ah, uh, seems messy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, I, I I, wonder if there's an argument to be made that, and I'm not sure I would make this argument now that I think about it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if you could make the argument that guns are a, like, for the modal case, guns result in, say, like more deaths and bad things happening in a certain sense. Like, you know, say just having a lot of guns makes possible lots of gun crime that re- tends to be more lethal and and so on. Yeah. But, and, and I mean, like, this is an empirical question, and I don't want people who like guns yelling at me about this. I don't care. Stop. Um, yeah. I'm it's sorry also, I made you mad, but only a little it, bit sorry. Yeah, I think I'm also being a little bit unfair to Europe here. Um, so, like, there are countries in Europe that have a lot of guns that are also pretty left leaning, like Switzerland yeah. or Sweden. Switzerland. Yeah, yeah. Like, like there um, are like plenty of countries have plenty of guns sitting around in people's closets. They just have like stronger regulations, or you get them as a result of serving in the military, or all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, what, what I'm thinking about in particular, and, and tying a bunch of things together, is like perhaps all else equal say in the United States or almost anywhere else, like having more guns available perhaps increases the amount of gun crime that just happens under normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. However, I wonder 
if it really does just as a matter of like imposing costs for more aggressive control tend all else equal to reduce certain very bad tail risks from government not because like the government couldn't go and say crush an uprising with that was just had small arms but because it would get really expensive like i sort of wonder what would happen if say the all of the uyghurs in china like had rifles you know what i mean yeah yeah no i i definitely agree and this is the question that i think the founders of america were asking and they came up with their answer um yeah right i i, I yeah. don't know like we've never had a ruby ridge well actually i don't know if that's true sorry i said that and then i don't know i i don't know if that's true i i retract that um but yeah the, yeah i'm not i'm not sure um yeah i think it's it's hard. complicated it's hard to say i it's yeah. i mean in my original in my original thread about things about which i would no longer have opinions i did have gun <laughs> control and yeah. I've I've strayed from that, but I think there are a lot of things about it where it's it's really difficult to know for sure. Um, yeah, it is. It's yeah. I think the the one thing that can be said for it is well, obviously, I think the one thing that can be said for it is the thing I said in the in my thread, which is that guns help make politicians scared, but educated populaces do too, and well organized communities do too. And yeah. I think you can achieve a lot of the benefit of having an armed populace without having an armed populace. Yeah, okay. Maybe, this is but, um, this is interesting though, because I think point number 16, you say that education is an industry principally consisting of hucksters, scams, clout chasers, mm-hmm. and cowards. Mm-hmm. So, so the education that makes politicians afraid is happening in spite of, of these various people in education who are, who are grifters. I think so. And that was particularly written at a time when I was very frustrated at my university education and especially at my university's handling of engineering ethics as a topic. Oh, interesting. I think engineering ethics is kind of important and kind of complicated and very, very messy. And, you know, the field of research, or I'm sure could be a large field of research by many people. Um, Yeah. But also, especially kind of software engineering ethics, because it's very new, I think, and not handled well by a lot of people. And so yeah. I was kind of pissed off at my university. I was writing like my my final year thesis, uh, like my capstone project for graduating as an engineer during that. And yeah. I was like, this is such bullshit. Fuck all this. Yeah. Like, um, but I do think that, you know, a populace that has received some education in some kind of philosophy, I know people like to laugh at the arts and a philosophy and stuff, but I think there is a value to receiving some education there. Obviously it's a pathway for indoctrination, but also like I grew up with a father who did like half a degree in philosophy before going off and becoming a technician. Uh, and that yeah. was very formative for me and very useful in reasoning about ideas. Um, and I think that if you had your entire population do, you know, read about Plato and read about like, you know, old, old philosophy and kind of the the fundamentals a little bit. Um, that makes it a lot harder to lie to them. Um, and also read about some critical theory, which is useful. Um, like reading things with a critical eye is something that you can teach kids and is useful to teach kids. That's not to say that you should teach kids like, you know, Marxist critique or like yeah. rightist critique or anything like that necessarily. Those are useful to learn, I bet. Like, I don't know, I didn't learn any because I was an engineer, um, but yeah. I'm sure they are useful if that's your your bag. Um, but 
just having an educated population makes it harder to pull some of the scams that can be pulled by people who are given power. I, you know, I sort of wonder about that. I'm, I'm a little bit less convinced myself. Hmm. And I think the reason, I don't know. I, I mean, in a certain sense, the United States is more educated than it's ever been. Mm. We have, we have huge fractions of the population that are going to college. And I, I think you would see if you believed that having a more educated population just like led to politicians being more afraid in some way that, that you would see like a, like as people became more educated, politicians would end up pulling less stuff. But I'm not sure that I see that at all. And well, I'm, being more afraid does not necessarily lead to pulling less stuff. Yeah, you think it would though, don't you? And maybe not. Uh, you'd hope so, but also, you know what happens when you get an animal in a corner, right? Like, yeah. I don't know. I I, I think America has a lot of problems, um, and also I think that. Like, I don't know about the quality of your high school education. Um, Highly Irish. varied. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my understanding. It's varied here too, but we have a pretty heavy focus on, like, keeping things generalized. Uh, Irish students are given quite a general education until they're, like, we take at least six, if not eight, or if not eight, you can take usually up to eight subjects um, for study until we graduate, until we, we leave high school, I guess, secondary school. Yeah, um, which I think has its advantages. I think generalized education is better than specialization yeah. sometimes for some things. Um, it's it's yeah, pretty general sure. here for the most part. You you can mm. go to some relatively elite schools and I think get a a much more specialized education. And I mean, it, you know, there are some fairly famous schools in New York actually that are like unusual. There, you know, there's the the Bronx uh, Science Academy, Bronx Bronx Science something. Mm that's pretty famous for, you know, being like a STEM school. And there's, um, um, Stuyvesant, which is a performing arts school. They made a musical about it mm. called fame. Uh, one of, one oh, of my yeah. exes went there. Um, so, you know, like you can go there and like major in dance in high school, mm-hmm. but th- that's all pretty unusual. And it's for people who are pretty devoted to, uh, you know, vo- like that kind of a vocation in a city where you can actually get employed doing that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and like I like ninety nine percent of the schools in the U.S. are quite general and and just geared toward you know the you, some of them are geared toward getting people to go to college you know in just a very general way and some of them are geared toward I mean trying to make it look like people have learned enough to graduate from high school mm-hmm. um, I, I mean I guess probably you know hanging out in in our circles you see enough people arguing about education that maybe you get a sense of some of the issues that we have yeah definitely um and and so this part of this also ties back into the hucksters thing right like yeah um that you know yes you have maybe the highest portion of your population ever graduating with degrees and i think so does ireland and ireland still has similar or at least some problems with politicians i think um a nine-week extension to our lockdown policy in covid got announced by the leader of our country our taoiseach with uh-huh. an interview in a fucking tabloid. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, it was like, we have a national broadcaster, like uh, Radio Television Air, like our RTE is our national broadcaster. 
these kind of things should be done on the national broadcaster that we all pay taxes to fund. But it was an exclusive interview with a fucking tabloid. Like, and it's like, that guy does not have enough fear. Um, yeah. Despite how educated <laughs> the populace is, you know? It's, it's actually, I mean, it, I have a hard time imagining a polit- like uh, the president in the United States actually giving an interview to a tabloid. That, yeah. that seems like something that would not be done at all. And I don't mean to Small country say that life, it, man. <laughs> yeah, fair. So I, I actually wanted to talk about that in particular. I, I think it falls out of a lot of what we've been discussing about, like, you know, American influence in, in Europe, and I guess Ireland in particular, mm. since you're in Ireland, where mm. I assume your knowledge is better. But, well, um, <laughs> well, we'll I, I don't know. We'll see how many yeah. Irish uh, followers of yours I annoy. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, so one, one thing, um, one thing that happened within the last few days was somebody posted that every country belongs, every country in the world belongs to America meme at you. And <laughs> you, you said it made you feel sad or something like that. And I think I said in response to that, at least we're not England, which yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> which I think is probably true, particularly for Ireland. But like, I, I am curious as somebody who lives in Europe like how you would grade the United States as a global hegemon. Are we doing curved grading here? Cause if we're doing curved grading, it's easy. Is it? Uh, yeah. If, why not if we're both? doing, if we're doing curved grading versus the alternatives, you like 100% a plus plus, like 10 out of 10 would recommend. Okay. And you're not <laughs> just saying this because we've got like a drone base in Ireland or something like that. Uh, you do actually, we've talked about Shannon before. Um, oh, Shannon Airport. Okay. Of course we do. I, I am I'm like both surprised and not surprised to learn it's this. It's not a drone I, base. You just use it for extraordinary rendition. You know, it's fine. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah I'm mad right? about this too if it makes you feel any better. Yeah. <laughs> I think everyone's mad about it except the people who keep doing it. Oh, <laughs> my God. I, I am so fucking – I'm just going to cut myself off and let you talk. But just know that I'm like fuming here. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was I gonna say? Oh Jesus! So, so I got um, a curve A plus plus. Yeah, yeah. Because like the alternatives are what, like Russia, which has recently annexed the Crimea in living memory, yeah. or China, which is not a good thing to live under, as far as yeah, I can we, tell. We've established your opinion of China, but like, what yeah. about what about like Great Britain or Spain? I mean, these are countries that have been sort of something like global hegemons, and like they the, have, but like, well, so. Almost anything is greater than Great Britain because Great Britain already tried to genocide my people. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they get like, they're definitely bottom of the pack. And the Spanish are, well, some of them are Celts, which is nice. You know, the Basque Spanish are just Celtic. Oh, people. true. Yeah. Um, so that would be neat, I guess, to have a little Celtic confederation. Um, well, although the Basques seem like they have a certain opinion about the rest of Spain. So I don't they know. They do. Yeah. We're, I, I'm, I'm rather fond of the Basque opinion of the rest of Spain, to be honest. I think they're, uh... <laughs> so, so do you, can you, can you foresee a future where, where Ireland, where Ireland is like arming moderate Basques? <laughs> no i think that would count as an act of war i think that would be a wow. big issue for the european union <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think we'd get um, margaret thatchered by germany uh, we'd oh, be informed god. that it's an internal matter and to be dealt with internally oh god um <laughs> but, yeah oh. yeah i i don't know i so okay so like negatives on all of those things but it, it sounds like that's a matter of 
Do, do you think Ireland would do better than the United States if for some reason you just came into possession of, you know, all of America's economic and military power and some means of sustaining it? No, um, not even a little bit. In fact, I don't think, um, hmm. Well, certainly not Ireland. We, um, the, the, like our, the class of political, um, people that we produce is just not up to up to snuff some of them are excellent some of them are very very good occasionally you get the odd gemstone um the that's just like absolutely remarkable i think um rival voices retweeted um one of our our representative to the eu um uh-huh. whatever our like um mep member of the european parliament as she was um just like taking apart the rest of the european parliament for a proposal to impose sanctions on Russia. And she was just like absolutely dismantling them and being like, this is an absurd attempt to escalate tensions with our nearest, like our nearest um, great power. And you need to like stop. This is obviously political posturing. It was over. um, I think it was over like some far right party in Russia had gained some power. um, Uh And the EU was talking about imposing sanctions or, um, trade sanctions or something along these lines. I, I don't know the, the full context well enough to, to speak confidently on it. But yeah, basically, the EU was attempting to escalate tensions with Russia, which are already pretty high um, in a pretty yeah. aggressive manner. And as far as I can tell, um, it was just like pure like military posturing and funneling more money into the fear slash military budget machine. Um, and just kind of like pointless, pointless stuff to do, really, and completely ineffective. It was like they wanted to close diplomatic relations as well, and and she yeah. was like, "We don't and like talk to these people that like you can't just say, well, a far right party in your country is gaining power, so let's um, let's not speak to you anymore." Like that's an absurd yeah. stance to take, and it was really, really like an excellent speaker, an excellent piece of oration, and just like you know. Uh, the kind of thing that makes you proud to be Irish, I suppose. Um, and that was really cool. And we have some of those. Our last tea shock to this one, um, I have issues with some of his politics, but it was actually kind of neat. He is a medical doctor. Um, mm. And it's cool that I guess Ireland is small enough that people who aren't politicians necessarily for a living, or at least have training that's different from like your bog standard political training, can get into the highest rungs of power. Yeah. And, it's also neat to have around during like a pandemic <laughs> yeah because he took it reasonably seriously ireland's handling has not been great but it was at least better than it could have been if some other egypts had been in in power um so there are some good ones but in terms of your broader question i just don't think we have the setup for it um i think we're a small nation and we think and exist like a small nation Small nation with an outsized impact, I think, culturally at least. Um, yeah. But yeah, no. And I don't really know if anyone could. Maybe Europe broadly could, but oh boy. Um, it, like, I do not envy America's position. And I don't know, I've mentioned before maybe that I think America is just too big to a certain degree. It's just not possible yeah. to have a po- like a cohesive population at that size for any yeah. great period of time. At least without yeah. pretty authoritarian rule. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, like I, I think that's that's an interesting point. I, 
honestly, I think I think some of the like divisions in the United States are sort of overblown and mm. almost like manufactured. I I mm. don't, but I mean, it 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 just doesn't seem to you know if you went back to like two thousand eight. I don't think mm-hmm. anybody would have ever been talking about, oh, this country needs to, you know, separate and, and into multiple countries. Like the the people were pretty unhappy with Bush by the end of his tenure and pretty happy with Obama at, at the start of his term. But mm. it wasn't the sort of long-term structural issue that led up to, say, the Civil War, where, you know, the Civil War, there was a very clear issue. There were a series of, you know, attempts that had been made to to rectify it in different directions. And all of them had failed and, you know, it was getting to the point where there, there was basically an ongoing guerrilla war happening in Kansas. And I mean, it was a mess, but mm-hmm. you can actually point to this actual longstanding cultural division that existed. Whereas now it's like, it just feels very fake to me. And mm-hmm. I, maybe, maybe the, the closest thing I can think to with what's happening in the United States is sort of like um, maybe what happened in Britain with the enclosure movement where suddenly like the, the country lifestyle that had existed was just made fairly quickly economically infeasible overnight. And people were losing Mm -hmm. their farms where, you know, they had lived for God knows how many years. And I I think there's something similar with the way that the United States has been exposed to trade and also just, you know, so, so what you end up seeing is there's this, the real divide in the United States is between cities and, and countryside it's yeah. it's not geographic it's you know it's not like you know some set of states are really cohesively right wing and some states are cohesively left wing it's like some mm-hmm. states have more cities than other states but if you look at the countryside it's it's uniformly red and if you look at cities they're almost uniformly blue yeah and and so it's like you know it may be the case that you could sort of have some like coherence of power in states that have more cities or fewer cities and they'll like try to move away but i i don't actually think it reflects some deeper cultural division and now a brief intermission okay so before we were rudely interrupted by what i can only assume was a problem with zencaster mm-hmm. um what I was asking was, or what I was about to ask was, what is it? What is it like having, like, living in a small country? And it, it's been something that I've thought about before. And I mean, one thing that maybe popped into mind immediately for me was that you mentioned that the there was an MEP who you know gave gave some kick ass speech in the European Parliament, and it made you feel proud to be Irish. And I wondered a little bit if what what irish nationalism is like or if it still exists um is especially because maybe like especially in the context of being a small country because it, i i can imagine that maybe if you're a small country nationalism seems safer because you're not going to go and invade another country because like <laughs> yes. be real um but also maybe more important like maybe maybe it's easier to be sort of swallowed up and say i don't know a giant country across the atlantic that tends to be culturally dominant Mm -hmm. yeah so nationalism in ireland is um i suppose a national pastime to a certain degree um yeah born from our roots as a as a as a as a a colony 
um, which I think all ex colonies would have. Yeah, you kind of everyone kind of has this vibe of like, yeah, it's pretty sweet being our own country and not being this other country, and we definitely have a justified claim to being our own country because of all this shared heritage. So let's do that, and that kind of yeah. has sustained us as a country for quite some time. It's getting more complicated now mm-hmm. as Ireland um, inevitably diversifies. Um, so, like, there's a lot of people around my age starting to write think pieces titled things like what does Irish mean or what does being Irish mean in current year um, which I think is partly yeah. an unfortunate import of America and partly a legitimate question to ask you know like being Irish when mm-hmm. you know when I was eight we'll say was like a matter of the fact that my last name has an e at the end which is indicative of the fact that my family didn't take the soup during the famine um, like that is a piece of Irish heritage that is oh. tacked on, that kind of thing. And like, it's very, yeah. because all of the history was so new, everyone or almost everyone had, at least a, an awful lot of people had like a direct connection to it. Like I had family in the IRA, mm-hmm. like the, the before Ireland was was no longer a colony IRA, like proper freedom fighter stuff. And most people had something like that. And most people could talk about what their family was a hundred years ago. Um, Cause we were super culturally homogenous and super like Ireland was a single ethnic. Well, it was actually kind of two ethnic identities because you also have the traveling community, but it was like very, very specific oh, yeah. what it was. But now it's more, it's becoming more complicated. Um, you know, as, as globalization comes for us all, everything is getting more complicated in this space. Yeah. Um, but there is definitely still a sense of like, Ireland is a good place and it's our place. And, and, and there's, there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's definitely a, a strong nationalist spirit. I think some people would decry it. There are people who decry it. There are people who say that, you know, it's no different to nationalism anywhere else. And that Ireland is kind of sketchy on those grounds and that there are you know um it leads to a kind of racism or a kind of a you know ethnic superiority kind of complex which is probably true in fairness like i think there are legitimate critiques of ireland to be made there um but you know i do love this place and i do love its people even its people who don't look like its people 20 years ago yeah or, or 60 years ago and i think that's the general vibe that you know everyone goes well you know sure your your parents might be from North Africa, or your grandparents might be, but like you're still Irish, at least, or or they might be from Bulgaria. I have some a friend from Bulgaria or anywhere really, and you know if you grow up here, we do have quite a lot of pretty specific Irish cultural artifacts. I was tweeting about some of them recently. Um, a, a short film called Calca Millish, in which a woman cruelly murders a man with asthma, <laughs> that every child in Ireland grows up seeing. And oh. There's a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's fascinating. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's an Irish language film, so it's like what every child wow. learns it as part of our Irish language education. And <laughs> it's it's a really a very specific oh, trigger God. for like my generation of Irish youth. Um, and there's a lot of stuff like this. And and having the language, um, everyone in in primary school and secondary school learns Irish. I speak almost none of it now. Um, because that's just, I didn't learn it well enough. And that's 
the general case. Most people speak almost none, but everyone speaks a little bit. And all of our own sides have it. Yeah. There's a definite sense of preserving Irish cultural heritage. And that leads to a sense of um, unity that I, I would like to think and I hope reaches beyond some of the divides that are cropping up recently. Um, but yeah, it's definitely complicated. Um, yeah. And, it's th- and there is definitely um, a pushback against Americanization. Um, a lot of people um, yeah. who think like me, at least, have take issue with it. We get frustrated about um, the Americanization of Irish media and the adoption of American um, ideas and American ideologies and American like approaches to things. Um, I don't know, like during yeah. all of the, I'm going to describe it as um, difficulties that America experienced over the summer last year. Um, the, there was a lot of uh, solidarity posting and even a solidarity march in Dublin that I, I found a little bit odd, um, considering that there's never been a solidarity march for- It was so weird to me. It was so <laughs> weird to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like it, It's weird to me because there are actual like pretty serious issues in Ireland that don't get solidarity marches. Like I mentioned members of the traveling community, travelers, um, like they will change their names on CVs because they will just not get hired for jobs if they don't. Because if you have a double barrel name of a certain kind, people just know you're a traveler and won't hire you. And like that, like they're defined as a dif- as, as a distinct ethnicity, like under Irish law, and they are a distinct ethnicity. And nobody goes on protest marches for them. Like, I just, I really find it, yeah, I've, alien. I've I've heard, I've heard stories, I've heard stories about things like that happening where, um, you know, an, an American will be traveling, and maybe it's apocryphal. I can't remember the details, but it's something along the lines of, like. You know, an American will go to Europe and, you know, they'll be talking to a European, say, in, in you know, France. And, you know, the, the Frenchman will spend some time decrying racism in the United States and talking about <laughs> how bad it is. And then, you know, the American will, like, mention something about the, you like, you know, Romani. And, you know, the Frenchman will say, oh, those people are terrible. Don't talk. No, no. Yeah. And it just, yeah. like, totally... And it, and that kind of feels like a parallel to that. Although, I mean, I guess France at this point is is maybe focused on, uh, I mean, more more on other things. Do, do you have any? Um, does that is? I'm a little bit curious about that. It's, it's not getting any play in the United States because our frankly our overseas media are terrible at this point. You know, like mm. Washington Post and New York Times used to have bureaus everywhere in the world, and even minor papers did. And now it's like everything is just dc based it's it or you know new york based and, and you just don't get anything else anywhere in the country um yeah but i i don't know i mean like what's what's the general like vibe in europe right now uh, i don't know like yeah i mean the the right wing is rising pretty pretty significantly i think um i think it's going to be a real problem in the next five to ten years um, oh yeah. One of the problems with a big group of countries that are distinct countries, but that all share borders, is that you all have to trust each other a lot, and that trust yeah. is starting to fracture a little bit. I think that's the vibe I get. I don't know. Yeah. I, I we might have meant, talked about this on the TL, but I 
I have a lot of love for the European project. I'm a big pro-Europe guy um, in a way some people aren't, but I really fear for it because, you know, it only really takes, it's kind of a prisoner's dilemma and we already have one defector and things are not getting better yeah. in the way they need to, to avoid that happening again. Um, and I don't know. And yeah, it's a real complexity. Europe has lived this kind of happy, homogenous, um, socialist dreamland lifestyle for a while, I think. Not really. Like, obviously, there's always been trouble. Um, Lord knows Ireland's been the source of some of them. But I think yeah, we're facing problems that um, the last time we faced them, as uh, speaking, I say we as in Europe, the last time we faced these kind of questions, the answer was, well, colonialism. Um, and <laughs> that's just not really on the table anymore. Uh, yeah. You know, you can't go and just yeah. enforce a homogenous culture anymore if people get upset about it. So I don't know, like it's, it's really tricky. Like there was talk of, I don't know, like, you know, what's the elephant in the room is um, like Muslim terror attacks in, in France, right? That's like the thing that keeps that that keeps people up yeah. a little bit in Europe, and it's part of the the motivation for the rise of the right wing in Europe. And there was talk of yeah. like banning. You, so- Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, um. So is that? I mean, like, do it? It seems like I don't know. Is is there sort of a conspiracy of silence talking about that? I, I could sort of imagine that, like maybe a lot of like center and left parties just like won't even name that as a thing that people are afraid of. And so everyone just bolts to the right because they're the only ones who are talking about it. Does does that? No, I don't think so. Especially not most recently. Like Macron got up on television and made some like pretty harsh statements about Islam following the most yeah. recent terror attack in France. And like Macron is not super right wing as far as I know. I'm not too up to date with French politics, so French people could correct me on this. Yeah. But he's not a leader he of a strikes me as an opportunist. He is a little bit of an opportunist. Yeah. But also like the fact he's an opportunist and he's also the leader of the country and will get up on 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 television and say pretty harsh things about Islam is like there's probably not a culture of silence there. Um but I think, yeah. you know, it's hard to argue with people getting attacked in churches. Um, like, you can't really. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's just tough. So, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gently bearish on Europe, I guess. <laughs> Which makes me sad a, a little bit. Yeah. I, yeah, and I, I mean, I just want to be, like, really clear about what I was intending to communicate. Like, it seems like, you know, if something, if there is some kind of a pattern, like, you know, lots of terror attacks by Muslims, it seems like one thing that you could do is just not acknowledge that it's happening. Um, that's, what I'm trying to say is that it, it seems like just denying or ignoring the fact that it's happening doesn't actually solve the problem, probably. And like, just by not talking about something, you know, it doesn't make it go away and if somebody talks about it like there are good ways and bad ways of talking about this or like you know relatively evil or relatively benign ways of talking about Mm -hmm. it like if if instead of like taking some relatively benign approach like you just don't acknowledge it at all it seems like that just leaves the entire territory open for the right 
Yeah, and yeah, I I'm definitely. Not, agree. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, no, the far it, right. It's like, yeah, Muslims are yeah. terrible. So, yeah, which is not a compelling argument, I think, um, but is definitely an argument that people will opportunistically make, and that people will flock to. And this is, yeah, I, I agree. That's a definite problem. I don't know how yeah. much of a problem it is. I don't know. This is we've been very object level for a while now, and I'm slowly getting lost in the weeds of my ignorance. Uh, yeah, these no, topics. for sure. <laughs> so like one one other thing that I wanted to ask before we transition over to the other thing that we were going to talk about um mm. is is there anything that you think Americans who are probably the majority of my audience should know about Ireland or or perhaps Europe that it doesn't seem like we do Oh boy um we are not despite um what might be a pretty carefully constructed image. We have all the messy complexities as the rest of Europe and the rest of America. It's not as different as you might think, although there are some definite significant differences, but it Ireland isn't some like fey world where there are no complexities and we're all good Catholics and everyone has five kids and like it's not the the image that Perhaps some Americans have of it. I don't know how many have a, have this image, but some might. Um, um, yeah, it's yeah. I mean, Americans may actually not have any any idea. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm maybe an eighth Irish, and you know, I, I still go to my family reunion in in Wisconsin from time to time. Hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, it's like you know, they 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 put four leaf clovers on the invite, and it's cute, and and also yeah. you know, like that feels pretty superficial. And, and, you know, I haven't actually had an ancestor who's been in Ireland, like lived in Ireland since I, I don't know it time beyond memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Like uh, that kind of stuff is nice. And it's like, it's fine to adopt some of the symbolism. I think American Irish pubs overdo it. I've been in, Amer- in, in oh, an God. American Irish pub <laughs> and they definitely overdo it. I'm like, this is, you are not recreating the experience of going to a pub in Ireland here. You are doing something different, nope. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, what I would communicate is that all of the messy difficulties about running a nation—well, not all of them, but a decent chunk of them—appear at almost every scale. Um, and we are certainly somewhat culturally homogenous, but not as culturally homogenous as we used to be. And it's changing pretty rapidly. Like Ireland has a decent yeah. rap scene now, like with actually good rappers, which is quite interesting for a country that is. Um, I think ninety five percent white or something. Um, it's like it's actually quite. Oh sure, yeah. Like that kind of stuff is interesting, and you know, it's we, basically we're a modern nation, and <laughs> that's it. Um, but I don't know how. Oh yeah, I mean that that for sh- that for sure. I, I mean, like you know, when when I think of Ireland, if, if you're a problem with something like modern Ireland or contemporary Ireland, I would think about large American tech firms basing mm-hmm. like formally reincorporating in Ireland and hiring Irish people. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, basically just thinking about Ireland as a, a high tech hub in Europe, yeah. um, which it, I, you know, I don't know how, how correct that is. I think there's some movie that was made about that maybe five or 10 years ago that I never watched, but I did see that there was a review of a movie that was about how tech was changing Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely a big topic. So a lot of Ireland's economy runs on what's referred to as foreign direct investment, FDI. 
Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is American tech firms. Um, a lot of his tech firms of all kinds. Ireland is just well suited for that kind of thing. Our population is, as I mentioned, very highly educated and very highly educated in mathematics and science. Um, we like actively yeah, incentivize it. students to take maths. Um, in terms of like our college admissions are, are a points-based system and you get an automatic extra 25 points if you do a certain level of mathematics, like regardless of the grade you get. Um, oh, really? So, yeah, we very heavily incentivize maths. There's been some debate about it. Uh, all the all the, all the English yeah. teachers get upset about it, but yeah, we, we like our students to learn maths to a high level. So we're like, we're pretty well set up and we're English speaking, which is nice for I... Americans. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know that English teachers should get much say about anything in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. A lot of our poetry was written in English. I got a lot of time for them, you know? <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. That's fair. Yeah. Um. So, okay. So we've been talking about just Ireland and, and manifestos and, and mm-hmm. such for, for a while, which is great and a lot of fun. But um, you mentioned, you mentioned like in the chat beforehand about um, talking about taking kids seriously and in particular, uh, I guess some some epistolary that that you had with a teenager, mm-hmm. and um, I'm curious about that story. And I mean, it's something that's definitely at the front of my mind with a daughter impending. Where, you know, it's like, all right, what is? I, it's hard for me to imagine not taking her seriously, like deadly serious, mm-hmm. at any given point in time. Like I, I'm just going to be wrapped with whatever she says, or so I imagine. Yeah, but. I mean, maybe that's not the same thing. And I, I mean, like, maybe that's just a very specific case. So I, I don't know, like, maybe maybe tell the story first. Sure, yeah. I think, well, I have two kind of ends on this, but I'll start with the story. So, uh, yeah, like, just um, a friend of my family, um, a friend of my mother's, her, her son has, like, had a kind of, has been having and had, particularly in primary school, which is, like, our grade school, I guess. Um, mm-hmm like a pretty rough time of things, like kind of was being picked on by authority figures and just having a bad time in a way that, you know, just sucks. Like just, you know, you hate to see a kid getting getting run through the mill and it was just not good. He wasn't in a good place. And he, he also, um, well, I don't, I hope he never hears this, I guess. I guess I'll speak as though he never hears this. Um, but he also, you know, he's, he's like a 14 year old like kid. He's barely entering puberties, you know, socially awkward. And he seems kind of of the the very nerdy, hyper fixated type that so many of in-group is, I think. Um and Yeah. And and he's also in a place where he doesn't know anyone who is able to talk at length about like he's his hyper fixation seems to be kind of tech related stuff, which is pretty common, I think. And he doesn't know anyone who can talk at length about that kind of thing. Yeah. So I was asked to do that. I was asked to answer some of his questions. And it's just like he sent me the email. Um I sent him an, he I, he prefers to communicate by email versus like a phone call or something for the same kind of social awkwardness or whatever, which is um which is fair enough, I suppose. And he he sent me this email with like three or four questions and, you know, they're, they're kid questions, kind of very general um, kind of, you know, the way questions can be framed in a way that indicates the asker doesn't fully understand the topic they're asking the question about, but they have an interest in it and they want to know more. Um, it was that kind of a I feel like question. I've done that a lot this podcast. <laughs> I don't know if I count as the, I don't know if my expertise on some of the topics you've asked me about uh, extends as far as my expertise in tech, <laughs> but yeah. He, well, I, I, I certainly don't know what I'm talking about, so. 
Yeah, me, me neither. And it's seven. But, okay. Well, it's eight in the morning, and I'm drinking a gin and tonic, so I guess I get a break. <laughs> oh God! Well, good for you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm gonna go to sleep after this. My theory is I'll sleep it off. Um, yeah. So yeah. So he sent me this email, yeah, and in it he but, had like some questions, and at the end of it, he had this line where he was like, "I hope these questions don't sound, or I'm sorry, these questions." I'm sorry for asking so many questions or something like this. And he was like, he was apologetic for even asking. And I was like, man, you have just not been taken seriously by authority figures before, by people who are meant to teach you things. If you're like, you should just not be apologizing. Like I, cause I sent him the first email and I was like, Hey, I heard you have some questions. And he came back and he was like, I'm sorry for ask, or I'm sorry for that. These questions aren't very clear or something. I was like, I just wanted to shake the kid and be like, it's fine. You're allowed to not know these things. And it's just, oh, it just, it sucks. And and so I wrote like 5,000 words in response to him, um, trying to like really, really as completely answer his questions as I could. Because I was like, he could do with someone taking his interests seriously, taking them like deadly seriously and really, yeah. really like, and yeah, that was the, that's the kind of story, I suppose. I don't know what kind of questions you have on it. Yeah, so... I I think I, I wonder there, there's this element of interacting with people and I, I do it a little bit sometimes myself, although I've gotten a lot better where it's, it's a certain kind of anxiety that I think is maybe more common in our circles than elsewhere. But mm. a lot of people will, will just be very pol- apologetic about asking for your attention or just, just sort of excessively deferential or, um, I, I'm not going to put anybody's names up here, but but just a lot of people who like feel terrible for doing anything. And I, I, the the reason that yeah. I I made those patches initially, uh, the the patches that I made, I don't know, sometime last year, and sent them out mm-hmm. that says like Eigen Robot says I'm good, yeah, was a response to that kind of attitude where where some people almost just feel bad for taking up space yeah. and. And, and that kind of like wanting to grab somebody and shake them and be like, no, you're fine. You have a right to exist. Please interact yeah. with me. You, like if I can't do something, I'll just say no, but, but this, this is madness. Come on. Yeah. And I, I, wonder, like, I, and I, I don't know where that comes from, but I, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. And, yeah. and, he seems and it like does a great kid. I don't know. And yeah, I, I, I think your Nerf gun also ties into this, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, you know, I, I've almost, I've almost never used it, but you know, sometimes, sometimes Moon will, will be apologizing for something absolutely absurd. And she, she does this much less <laughs> than she used to, but it's like, mm-hmm. honey, honey, like you are nine months pregnant. Stop it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I've considered inst- instituting a similar policy with, uh, with Holly. Yeah. <laughs> she does the so, same thing. She over apologizes and I'm like, you gotta, you're okay to be here. Like it's fine. Yeah. No. Or like, you know, I mean, there've been other times where I've asked her just to like request absurd things of me, you know, mm-hmm. things that any normal person would say no to. And, you know, <laughs> either I'll say yes to them or I'll say, no, I'm not going to do that. Let's talk about <laughs> something else. And and I think like maybe, maybe getting that is useful too, but mm. I, I don't, I'm just, just like knowing that other people have boundaries that they're happy to enforce and you don't have to like pre-apologize for, mm. for getting anywhere near them. But it, I mean, it's tricky, you know, because the, there are on the other hand, some things where if you ask somebody 
you know, about something, it is actually somewhat insulting to ask about it. And I mean, so maybe, maybe a 14 year old kid just doesn't quite have a good sense of where that line might be. And they're playing it a little bit safe. Yeah. He was playing it very safe. Like his questions were purely technical and he was just like still super deferential. And I get like, you know, he's the 14 year old kid and he's talking to an adult he doesn't know. And an adult who knows things that he wants to know, or is maybe a place is in a place that he might want to get to someday. And it's like, I get it, but Gosh, it's just hard to hard to see, you know. Yeah, I wonder were were you taken seriously as a kid? Yeah, so this is the the other end I was going to get into. I think I was, um, at least by my parents. I a funny anecdote is that my my father never let anyone like baby speak to any of his kids, uh, me or my huh. two sisters. He was like, speak to my son like a person. <laughs> and yeah, I don't yeah. know. I, I don't know if that is a good idea. I don't know if you know child care specialists would, or child educate, or early childhood education people would agree with that. But his view was. But we've established they're grifters, so yeah, this is true. He, his view was: my son is a person. You will speak to my son like a person, and it will help his language evolve and it, take him seriously. Um, take him as seriously as you should a child, right? Like a, someone barely capable of having like real, you know, ideas, but you know, they're still there and they're to be taken seriously. And I think that was pretty influential. And that attitude carried across a lot of both his and my mother's parenting style. Um, so like, I remember when I was 12 or 13, I was having kind of similarly a rough time in secondary school. I didn't, I didn't like authority very much, um, which I think is common. Amongst yeah. Many tribe, such cases. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was just having real difficulty and he kind of refused to sugarcoat it. He was just like, or sugarcoat the situation I was in, you know, with schooling. He was like, Oliver, this is, this is a, a thing you have to do. It's a game you have to play for the next six years and then you can do whatever you want. Um, and you have to play it well because that will let you do the things you want. And that's your life for the next six years. And that was his approach. And I think that was like, yeah, that kind of attitude versus like the kind of, either you know coddling being like oh you know move schools or something or um or the alternative which is just undue harshness of like just toughen up it's like both of those are are too far in one or the other direction and just like taking the kids seriously but also taking the place they are in seriously and like addressing them to a certain degree as appropriate obviously as an adult is like it just, I think it's the right way to approach these things, basically. Um, yeah. Do you do you think that you got some of that in Boy Scout? Er, I guess in Scouts in Ireland. Yeah, definitely. Um, that was also definitely a thing. Um, definitely a big factor that you know people are, and I think that that's one of the the cool things about scouting, um, generally, and and um. I don't know scouting isn't very cool here. I don't know how cool it is in America, but it has a kind of a nerdy. Oh, it's super uncool. It's, yeah. It's super... <laughs> yeah. So it has this kind of nerdy, nerdy vibe to it, I guess. But one of the things they do is that kids are allowed to hurt themselves a little bit, you know? Yeah. They're allowed to be in the world and, 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 you know, be cold and be uncomfortable and, you know, get blisters on their feet and stuff. And it's like, yeah, obviously you need to be careful with this stuff because kids are not able to express 
hurt as well as adults are and as clearly as adults are and you need to and they're also not able to express pushing back against being hurt as well but you know there is a there is a tremendous value to being like in a place where the boundaries aren't soft right where you're not in this pattern room of um of parenthood i guess or of your parents looking after you and you can bump your head against stuff and it'll hurt um and you learn a little bit about the world that way i think yeah i i mean i there there was a lot of that in in scouts for me i ended up in a hospital twice as a boy scout (laughs) i so so once once uh there's there's a very large they call it a scouting ranch in the United States. It's a huge swath of northern New Mexico up in the mountains mm. called Philmont. And it's it's basically desert territory, but it's also mountainous. And so they they hammer it home when you're training for Philmont that you need to stay hydrated. You need to always be drinking water. Don't <laughs> underdo this. And I overdid it. I followed the directions too closely. <laughs> and I ended up with hyponatremia, which, you know, oh. like just you're your blood cell gets too low and um they they had to drive me out and it was fine you know they they just fed me a pretty salty plate of eggs and i was back on my feet the next day Mm -hmm. um but you know it it was risky and i was in pretty rough shape by by the end of that evening yeah um the the other time i went to the hospital is when i was stabbed and by a kid by a kid it, oh, it was an accident. He he thought he was pulling a fillet knife out of his out of his pocket with a sheath on it, but the oh, sheath came God. off, and so yeah. he just came at me with a naked blade. And um, he he didn't hit my abdomen. I I, met, I saw it coming, and I knocked it aside with my hand, and so I only got stabbed in the wrist. Uh, but you know, I, I needed to get stitches, and it actually was one of the more fun times I had in Boy Scouts. I mean, the scoutmaster, <laughs> you know, bought me ice cream. There was a, a fun story where I was nervous. And when I'm nervous in a hospital, I talk a lot and very quickly and it's nonsensical. Mm-hmm. And it's a good, it's a coping mechanism. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've told this story on the timeline before, but the the nurses just put up with me. It was this small town hospital in, in Wisconsin, um, you know, older doctor who had probably been there for 40 years. And, mm. and so the nurses just put up with me and the doctor came in and he listened to me talking quickly for about 30 seconds while he was prepping his sutures. And then he just looked at me and he sighed and he put all of his equipment down in a nice orderly fashion. And then he like sat down and put his, put his shoulders on his knees. And he said, robot, if you don't shut up, I'm going to put the sutures in your penis. <laughs> and, and, and I shut up. I shut yeah. up immediately. <laughs> and it's like, all right, <laughs> fair enough, doctor. Yeah. <laughs> that is not the kind of thing you'd get away with today for sure. <laughs> no, I know. I know. <laughs> it's very good though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those exchanges where it's like, you're not supposed to do it and it's against the rules, but also there, there's a kind of, um, it felt like that was taking me seriously too. You know, yeah. It, yeah. it was a way that he had of expressing that he was irritated with me and I think even then it was sort of breaking the rules. I mean, you know, he was, he was like a 60 year old doctor in Rice Lake, Wisconsin. What what was anyone going to do to him? But, (laughs) but even so it's like, and I, I feel like, I don't know, maybe maybe there's this element of schooling that is just, I've, I guess I've written threads about this where it's just too over rule focused where, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it used to be the case and maybe, maybe this ties into taking kids seriously where 
I think teachers and students had a more reciprocal or like less rigid relationship. And instead, like you were a teacher and this was your student and you were responsible for them in some way. It wasn't just you were hired and you had these students and you had to like shepherd them through, but sort of more along the lines of the relation, like the master apprentice relationship that still exists in PhD programs. So Mm -hmm. I think less now than in the past. I mean, my, when my mom was getting her PhD, she got her advisor and he called her into his office for their first meeting. And she started talking and she, she started saying something and he just cut her off and said, look, let's just treat this as you having your doctorate. Like, Hmm, we just right, need to yeah. do some work, but like, and let's sit down and get writing. But mm-hmm. like, and, and that was taking her seriously as a scholar, I think. Yeah. Like he, and, and, you know, they kept writing articles together for, for years afterward. And I, I mean, I actually got to know him. It, it wasn't just, he was going to work and doing his job and, you know, putting up with this graduate student. He, I mean, he was treating her as a peer and a colleague yeah. and, I wonder if there's some amount of that that, I mean, is almost surely completely absent in elementary schools, mm-hmm. and yeah. and and high schools where it's you know more 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 industrial, I guess, rather than pre-industrial. Yeah, I don't know. Have you? I I don't know if you saw my thread about high school or secondary school in Ireland. Um, I kind of defended it because I see a lot of people being like tear down the institution of schooling. And yeah, my experience of secondary school is that. We, we do six years of it, of which the fourth year is like a break year. It's called transition year. It's that you're transitioned from a junior to a senior cycle and you don't do any tests for it and you're not preparing for any tests. It's very laid back. There's a lot of kind of blow off classes. You know, schools put on plays and they do charity stuff. Like it's very, very chilled. Um, yeah. It's cause, because in third year you do a series of state examinations that are pretty stressful. So then you get like a year off as a kid basically. And then you go into two more yeah. years of pretty stressful examinations to prepare for university. Um, but I yeah. kind of defended schooling cause so my, my experience of secondary school was my first three years were pretty unpleasant. I was like a pretty bright kid. I did well in school and I, but I also did not do well with authority at all. Like for someone who got the yeah. grades I got and who was able to understand the rules as well as I was and to, you know, show up on time and had a good home life and all of that, I got in a lot more trouble than I ought to have. Um, I got a lot more detention slips. I got a lot more flack from teachers. I, you know, cause I just didn't like it. I also, did, I like, I hated homework. I hated the concept of it. Like you got, you're giving me work I have to do when I'm not in this building. Like fuck off. <laughs> I didn't do well with that Yeah, at all. yeah. Yeah. So I, so my first three years were like pretty rough, pretty rough and ready. And then in fourth year, I think I remember our principal who was this quite stern, um, older woman, uh, called Miss Fox, uh, who was kind of pretty great actually really, uh, once you got to know her, but she was pretty harsh sometimes. And she got yeah. up in front of, uh, so I went to an all boys school and she got, and she got up in front of like a hundred boys and went, Right you're transitioning now from boys to young gentlemen. And our job for the next two, three years is to help you do as well as you can in these leaving certificate exams and turn you into young gentlemen. And she said that to us and that's what they did. And it worked pretty well. <laughs> like we came together as a oh, year that's pretty great. well. And yeah. And, and I think that to a certain degree, getting up in front of this group of like 
115, 16 year olds and being like, what's going to happen now is we're going to spend the next two years or three years trying to make you a person that can exist well in society. That's like a pretty decent thing to do. And I think it also yeah. ties into kind of taking, taking us seriously. And it didn't work for everyone. And obviously, of course it doesn't. And it's not the same in every school, but I think it's an example of that kind of, there's a certain straightforwardness to that you can have with kids that is really beneficial. And that is sometimes avoided for the sake of basically manipulating them into doing something you want, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it was really rare for me when I was, when I was teaching at university to really be able to just sit down and have normal conversations with students. Mm -hmm. I don't think they expected it. And I, I mean, like, you know, formerly my job was to get up in front of the classroom and, and just recite things at students. And I, I didn't yeah. do that. I, I'm enough of a thespian that I usually turned it into some kind of a performance. Yeah. And I had a lot, and I would have been bored doing that. So, if, you know, of course I was going to make it fun for me as long as I was up in front of the classroom. But mm -hmm. I mean, there are a few cases where I was actually able to just talk to students as peers and I always liked that more. I think they got more out of it. And, you know, yeah. in a couple of cases, like it, it genuinely influenced what they did with their lives. I mean, one, you know, one student that I just took on as an RA for a semester, um, you know, I was like, Hey, here's some code that I want to write. And she started learning to code and, mm -hmm. you know, actually wrote some pretty clever functions for parsing, parsing texts that people were trying mm -hmm. to deliberately obfuscate and, you know, and she, she's a data engineer at a fan company now. And I just don't know that she ever would have even had the idea to do that if, if, if she hadn't just like struck up a conversation with me when I was hanging out in the, in the economics office. And, yeah. you know, there's another student who was, you know, doing absolutely brilliantly in an econometrics course that I was TAing. And so, I mean, like she came to office hours once, I think pretty stressed out about a paper that she was writing. And it's like, yeah, no, you're, you're doing really well. And she was, she was doing great. And I mm -hmm. think she went to grad school too. Uh, master's program, fortunately, you know, she wasn't throwing her life away. <laughs> so so I, I don't know. I mean, just being able to, I, I think it, it was frustrating that I wasn't able to have more conversations like that with students and also yeah. that fewer, that, that not so many students even thought to have conversations like that with me. I mean, mm. you know, that's what office hours are for. And I think students don't even see that as a part of what they're doing at a university. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that's true. Um, I know I didn't, right? I, yeah. I was, uh, I was, I'm a, I'm a pretty recent grad. So I remember being an undergrad and yeah, until, well, maybe the whole time I didn't really take it, take it as a thing that I could do. And to a certain degree, I didn't, I didn't want to, I, I very nearly did a PhD like a fool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bullet dodged. Yeah. Right. I, I barely didn't get state funding for my PhD. I missed it by like your applications are graded on a 100 point scale. And, um, I missed the cutoff by like two points or something <laughs> yeah. for my application to get funding. So I didn't get funding and I was like, well, oh. I'm doing a PhD. So, <laughs> which is, is nice now. Yeah. I look back on it. Cause I'm like, yeah, I like where I'm at now. But um, yeah, it was definitely, it's a little frustrating at the time, I guess, um, but it was fine. 
And the guy who like signed up to be, yeah, he would have been my my mentor, my whatever the term is. Um, if I had gotten the funding, he was great. Um, he was a Chinese guy, and he was like dead on, really sound, worked really hard to get me get me up and running with all of that. Yeah, um, and he was pretty bummed that I didn't get the get the thing, but I I kind of. I don't know. I started kind of f- flaking out of academic life around that time. I just, I kind of realized that I was tired of being in university and I wanted to go build stuff, um, which is a yeah. common experience for engineers. I think, I don't know how, how other fields get it, but engineers, by the time we hit fourth year, we're like, we just kind of want to get out of there and start doing things that are useful. Um, at least that was yeah. my experience. Do you, do you mind if I ask, do you do, um, do you do some kind of traditional engineering or is it CS stuff or? Um, so my, my degree was in electronic and computer engineering. So, and my specialization was in systems and devices. So it was kind of fairly heavy on the digital devices, like physical digital devices, um, like NAND chips, that kind of thing. And, um, and some low level software and then a lot of like analog circuitry and analog electronics, a lot of electromagnetism, that kind of thing um oh cool so, good work if you can get it yeah well yeah i, I do software I, now my my work now is is uh, uh, yeah. very very high level i work on like microservices <laughs> but you know yeah. it's fine i, I well, like having the mathematics background yeah. it's useful sometimes oh yeah right no it's i i actually deeply respect that i so i took um i i was a I was a biochem major among other things. And <laughs> so I, I took, I took the engineering physics sequence at my university and mm. the, the second semester was electricity and magnetism. And oh, yeah. I got an, a, I got an A in the class, but I could not tell you what the hell I was doing. I don't understand electricity or magnetism even remotely with any kind of intuition. I mean, like, yeah, I could integrate over a field of resistors, whatever the hell that means. But like, you know, as as far as actually understanding what I was talking about, no Mm -hmm. idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fun. Um, the kind of the, the 3d electromagnetism is where my brain starts to fall apart. I get into like wave propagation in three dimensions and I'm like, Oh, this is a struggle. Oh no, This is no. a real trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty good at the circuit analysis stuff. Cause you just throw it all into like a little plus domain and it's easy <laughs> to a certain degree. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, there's definitely people have different preferences and mine wasn't the only specialization. So the way my degree worked is that when you got into fourth year, you chose a specialization. And so people specialized in like, what was basically web development, um, but like web development from the ground up. So you'd start at like the network stack level. Um, that was kind of the difference yeah. between us and our and the computer science course in our university, which is um, a little bit higher level. They wouldn't do quite a, quite as much of the low level stuff as we would do in terms of programming. Um, but yeah, yeah, so like there were there were lighter specializations that didn't do all this math stuff. But because I'm I'm a fool, I was like, yeah, I want to do the hardest one. So I picked the hardest one. Um, which oh, no, is... I completely identify with that. <laughs> yeah, I remember in first yeah, year. So yeah, my, we do like common entry. So it's uh, you do all types of engineering for the first year. So it's just basically a lot of fi- like physics and maths. Mm. And then you choose your specialization, whether you want to be like an electronic engineer or a mechanical engineer. And I was pretty good at the electronic stuff. So naturally I was like, oh, well, I'm pretty good at this like programming and this electronic stuff. So I should do mechanical engineering because that's the bit that I'm weak at. <laughs> Which I did yeah. not do in the oh, end. No. <laughs> but yeah, that's Yeah. Oh man. So um 
I, I don't actually have any idea how long we've been talking because um, mm. we got cut off in the middle there. But um, I'm imagining you're probably a little bit drunk and maybe you want to sleep. You should definitely sleep. I'm, I'm not I'm seeing the sun is coming up. Like, I'm not too bad. But um, yeah. Oh, man. Um, I, I actually kind of want to sleep. Yeah, that's it's, fair. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's midnight 30 over here and my, my sleep Ooh, has Jesus. been a mess lately. Yeah. Um, but b- before we go, I don't know. Um, so, I mean, you're you're a bunch younger than me, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe somebody who's listening is younger than you. Do, do you have any... What what would you say to somebody who's listening to this podcast that would make them like to convince them that they should be taken seriously? Maybe just that. Maybe that's a really boring question. I don't know. Oh, that's I think it's a complicated question. How do you convince someone they should be taken seriously? Uh, I don't know. Like when I'm thinking about when you were talking about people over apologizing and the kind of the taking taking up space thing. I think part of it is that you have to learn to take yourself seriously. Yeah, which is quite hard to do. But in terms of what you'd say to them, I guess there is a place for them in society and they have a meaningful contribution to make. And for them to make that contribution, they need to take themselves seriously. Um, that's kind of the best I can do, which is a very collectivist attitude, I suppose. But yeah, they yeah. just have like an inherent worth. I don't know. I One of the topics we could have talked about perhaps is how I am a a stated atheist but i behave as though i'm not um oh yeah yeah and we should and <laughs> i that, that's very interesting did you listen when i was chatting with um Kersey and with chris allen about about some of that i didn't i the only one i have is sonya as, as a good reference frame here I, I missed that one i i i'll admit that i haven't gotten through your entire back catalog oh, been... please no no don't apologize <laughs> I'm only asking because we it's it's been on my mind a lot actually like it it seems like there's an extent to which i mean a lot of people especially in rationality are like either de facto or explicitly atheist Mm -hmm. and also there's maybe like a, a to a certain extent a real resilience or or continuation of what seems like a pretty christian ethic and yeah it's something something that I'm like picking at and really trying to think about again, actually from, from the perspective of kids, just because, mm-hmm. you know, my, I want to be able to help my, my kids be good to mm-hmm. other people and to live lives that are somehow like they can see dignity and meaning in yeah. and like also for, for them to not be assholes. You know, I, mm-hmm. I would feel terrible if I raised kids who just were kind of dicks as human beings. I mean, I would love them anyway, but I, I would feel that and yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe I wouldn't even be capable of noticing it, you know, like maybe you're blind maybe. to that in your own kids, but it, it just feels like I have a responsibility to them and to the world to, to help them live lives that are like somehow good or virtuous or something. And mm-hmm. so, you know, how do you do that outside of an, standard like moral teaching institution and yeah and we so we, we talked about that a bit um i don't know it might be of interest to you i'm definitely yeah, not trying definitely. to show my own podcast to you and like <laughs> make my make a guest on my podcast go and listen to my other podcasts but i don't yeah, know it sounds it's, interesting yeah it's been on my mind and if you want to come back sometime and like we can bring someone else on and just try and oh, pick yeah. at it because it's 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 on my mind a lot. 
Yeah, it, it bothers me that it's, as far as I can tell, basically impossible to invent the fundamental value of a human being from first principles. Yeah. Like, you can't make a, a logical argument for, like, a soul, basically. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you identify as, as a rationalist or as a post-rationalist or anything like that? I think I'm too young for a start. Yeah. Um, and I haven't read enough of the stuff. I, yeah. I I suppose I I'm I have po- <laughs> unaffiliated yeah. with post rat tendencies is I suppose what you would call me. <laughs> yeah, well, fortunately, not reading things is extremely post rat, so keep yeah. that in mind. But um, <laughs> I've been informed, yeah. Yeah, but- <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's I, I I wonder how common a problem this is for for people in this in this like broader broader tribe and like how people are coming to grips with it eventually, because I mean, there's, I mean, especially among rats, like really an interesting in like deriving things from principle. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that you're pro I I think you could come up with some kind of utilitarian argument for treating everyone with dignity, but I, I don't know that you can really like derive a belief in it, which seems important. And I mean, even if you can come up with the utilitarian argument, like you part of like encoded in that at some base level will be a framework of it is good for people to feel good in some way. Right. Like eventually you hit yeah. this rock bottom where you just need to like define something as good. You need an axiom basically. I yeah. Know. I don't know either. It's, <laughs> it's tricky. I mean, maybe, maybe people have just been worried about this since they invented being atheist and, <laughs> and, so. and it's, it's, a, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. I mean, I, I don't know. I just, just thinking about how, how you can propagate that kind of a norm without like any, any kind of religious institution seems like a really pressing problem. And I, I don't know that anyone is really trying to solve that at all. Yeah, I think a lot about like the atheist meme where they're like, I don't need God to tell me not to kill people because I know how to be a good person without God. And I'm like, what the hell are you defining as a good person? Because it seems like your revealed preference here is that God exists. Like, Yeah. And I, I mean, like, I feel I, and I feel like with that thing in particular, like, yes, it's like, I definitely believe you that you don't need like you probably just absorbed this idea that, yeah, it's definitely good to not kill people. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, I don't, I mean, like maybe my big fear is that there's that kind of a Christian ethic that I, I mean, is just kind of like hanging over and it takes a while for that to decay, but I can also see it potentially decaying. And yeah, <laughs> even, even now there's, there's like that, um, you know, that observate the, there is that paper that came out five or 10 years ago about, about this idea of like an honor culture versus a dignity culture versus a um, victimhood culture. And Hmm. in that case, it's like, you know, in an honor culture, you actually have to fight people who, you know, complain, who make you look bad or some such. And in a dignity Mm -hmm. culture, violence is constrained just because everyone is just like, yeah, everybody has inherent dignity. Just chill out. Like maybe somebody says something bad about you, but you don't actually mm. need to do anything to have redress because you're just intrinsically a good person. Think about that. Yeah. And, and then like in a victimhood culture, the, the recourse that you have is an institution. If somebody says something bad about you, you, you go and you take it to some, to some institution and they, they will like grant redress 
And I think like maybe, I don't know, just, just in seeing the way that people act, it does seem to me like they're, you know, and I don't know what it was like in Ireland. I, I can only compare it to my perception of the United States from when I was a kid, but it does really feel like there's been a major cultural shift away from just everybody being treated as having dignity by default. And and maybe now it being more matter of like membership in a group, for example. Hmm. And that's what grants you dignity rather than just like, yeah, you're a human. You You get to feel dignified by default. You don't have to justify it in terms of like, you know, what your, your gender is or your race or like, you know, what set of beliefs you have. It's, it's just something that's there by virtue of you existing and being a human. And I mean, like, and that, that feels really Christian to me in the sense that it's like, yeah, everybody's human. Everybody like has this shot at redemption by, you know, just behaving well. And, and so I don't know. I, I, I definitely find it aesthetically horrible to see that that kind of a belief like fading out. And I'm not sure that you can have a like in the long term, I'm pretty skeptical that you can really have a liberal society and in, in in sort of the more traditional sense of liberal without without having that underlying axiom. So Yeah. Uh, part so part of the issue I think here is that that underlying axiom is at odds with liberalism at least in some formats. Well, I guess not liberalism, but kind of libertarianism, I guess, maybe. I don't know. Um, but it's, it is like, to me, to me, liberalism is synonymous with individualism, which mm. goes against, to a certain degree, a lot of the things that makes souls work. That like, fundamentally, the idea of everyone has dignity and everyone has, you know, the shining light of God within them, if you like, yeah, brings with it a certain degree of collectivism. Maybe, maybe it's just charity, right? Like maybe individuals are able to do it because as long as you have charity, it works. But I don't know if you're building institutions and you're building them with a mind to everyone has a chunk of the Holy Spirit in them, then it seems like you'd build them to be kind of collective. I don't know. I don't have a good yeah. cohesive idea here. It just, it's, it's more of a vibe, I guess. Yeah, we should. I, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm, I'm glad that other people are thinking about this and mm-hmm. maybe worried about it. I don't want to label your sentiments, but we should, we should uh, maybe definitely I'm worried about it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should, we should maybe grab somebody else and come back and, and just hammer away at this in a yeah. dedicated episode because it, I don't know. It, it feels like an important problem. It feels like it's not something that's being talked about, at least right now. And mm-hmm. I mean, just honestly, just getting it more in the water supply would make me feel better. So yeah, yeah, that'd be good. I'd, I'd be up for that. All right, be a good time. Ah, huh, cool. All right, we're we're definitely over time now, and I need to pass out. <laughs> yeah, good luck with the editing. I feel kind of bad that it like crapped out halfway through. Oh no, no, man. It, it, both of us fell off. I'm pretty sure it was server side and it's, it'll take like 30 seconds to fix it. So don't sweat okay. it. All right, sweet. Anyway. Hey, thanks. Thanks for staying up all night and drinking. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. And, um, <laughs> I, I think I'd be bringing shame to my people if I didn't stay up all night and drink. That's like part of the oh, deal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was really, <laughs> really carrying on the Irish spirit. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool, man. Take care. Yeah. Cheers. 